Policy Podcast. I'm Evan Schwarzschreiber, your host. On today's show, 3D printing. New technology is changing the nature of manufacturing, and 3D printing has the potential to revolutionize our economy in many ways. It brings production closer to the consumer. It minimizes the need for manufacturers to maintain large inventories. Uh, shipping spare parts around the world is less necessary if you can print them right in your right in your backyard. And uh, even average consumers can have the opportunity to design and manufacture products in their home. But this technology is also causing controversy as 3D printing has made uh, manufacturing guns relatively easy. Uh, So the government clearly has a concern if people can just throw together a gun with a 3D printer, but it also raises issues around the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. Joining me to discuss this is Randall Meyer, a legal associate at the Cato Institute, who co-wrote a legal brief in Defense Distributed versus U.S. Department of State, a court case involving 3D printing. Randall, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on again, Evan. So, Randall, Defense Distributed, this is a uh, nonprofit organization, and uh, they publish certain computer-aided drafting files. These are the, the, the code that allows someone to print something like the Liberator, one of their signature products, which is a single-shot handgun. Uh, this company, or not company, nonprofit, has also been referred to as Wiki Weapons because of its open-source nature and the way that it just distributes uh, files for 3D printing of guns without uh, intellectual property attached to them. So what exactly is the State Department's beef with Defense Distributed Randall? So the State Department, in its own regulations, says that you can tra- an American company can transmit technical information about guns or can transmit the sort of technical code that we're talking about here to other Americans with, uh, under the First Amendment with the full protections of free speech. Now, the State Department's problem is that when these files are posted on the Internet, foreigners can get access to them, download weapons, and then apparently can commit acts of terror or uh, other sorts of crimes in their own countries that are punished under those countries' criminal codes. So really, their issue is this very, very attenuated risk that someone in a foreign country may download it and then may use that downloaded weapon for some illegal purpose that they cannot specify at this time. So really, the legal case against them is dealing with a hypothetical situation where somehow this ends up into the wrong hands and used against us. But really, the mission of this organization, they say, is to protect uh, global gun rights. They're, They're not just talking about the United States. They're talking about the ability of people around the world to popularly own guns, to make them in right, maybe right in their home to kind of combat against gun control efforts or regimes that want to clamp down on people having weapons. So does the State Department have a legitimate claim, given their global focus, in saying that these products could be seen as an illegal export? I don't think that they have a claim that they can be seen as an illegal export because nothing's being exported. These files are just being disseminated for speech purposes uh, across the United States. And since the medium is the internet, it also happens to be available to foreign persons. Now, digging as a whole, what Defense Distributed does with these CAD files and these wiki weapons has significant political, scientific, and artistic merits, which is what we try to protect under free speech. The code that they're using hasn't just been used to make guns, but also several artists have used it to create different exhibits. Uh, One very creative artist in Germany used it to create a chandelier of the different guns. And indeed, the Liberator pistol is currently on exhibit at a museum in London. 
the so when we're talking about this code that's being restricted by the defense department we're talking about restricting the entire medium of speech that is code uh so are is computer code always free speech though i mean is, is this kind of an absolutist situation where any type of computer code is considered free speech some could say that that's dangerous that eventually 3d printers could be used to make much more dangerous things than a single shot pistol that is disposable it's useless after the one shot that might sound pretty benign but there's nothing stopping a 3d printer uh, or a, a coder from creating code for much more dangerous weapons so does the government have a legitimate public interest in restricting code that can be used to manufacture weapons I don't believe that they have legitimate government interest in restricting code per se, but something, some downstream use of it, sure. If you use code to kill someone, then it's an instrument of a crime called murder. But the code itself is not the issue in these sorts of cases. And this is really a burgeoning area of law that's really interesting. Um, the Second Circuit and the Sixth Circuit, two of the larger federal courts of appeals, have held that computer speech more or less is code. Or, sorry, that computer code is more or less speech. Uh, the Supreme Court itself in 2011 held that video game code is expressive speech. So there is some precedent. The precedents may weigh much more in favor of code as speech, but this isn't what I call a developed area of law where a lot of courts have had to weigh in on different facts or different issues. So there's definitely some room for exceptions to be carved out or for things to be more messed up along the way towards a developed body of law. So is there an allegory here with the uh, imminent threat test for free speech? A lot of the times when we're talking about restrictions on free speech, one of the legitimate uses of restricting free speech is for imminent threats. So there's a clear difference in the eyes of the government between saying something like, someone ought to go shoot the president, right? That's an, maybe an expression of frustration with the administration. There's a big difference between doing that and saying, someone ought to shoot the president, meet me at 12 p.m. tomorrow right in front of the White House, and we'll do it then, right? So there's a clear difference there. One's an imminent threat, one's not. Does that kind of distinction between imminent threats come into play when we're dealing with whether disseminating code could be an imminent threat? So maybe just allowing anyone online to build a liberator is fine because it's kind of a general matter. But if someone says they're going to commit a violent act if provided with code, defense distributor then provides them that code. Is that more of an imminent threat issue? Is there, since this 3D printing is a new area, maybe the body of law is not fully developed, are there some analogies we can draw to other cases that might help better inform what is free speech and what is not when we're talking about 3D printing code? Well, there's there's definitely a better argument for some sort of liability against defense distributed when we're talking about them giving uh, the direct computer code to someone who says, I'm going to use this for this illegal purpose, and you're giving it to me knowing that I'm using it for that illegal right. purpose. But what they're doing right now is they're not distributing this to people for any purpose. They're not doing these direct communications. What they're doing is simply disseminating a file that can be modified through its open source format by anyone to create something as innocuous as a chandelier. So the but to get back to your larger point, the Supreme Court is very consistently held, at least since the 1920s, that just because speech can be used for unlawful purposes doesn't mean that it loses First Amendment protections. And you're right that in 1969, the Supreme Court held that unless speech causes an imminent threat 
and is likely to produce such action, then you cannot uh, inhibit the speech just because of its potential to cause some sort of criminality. So what we argued actually, Cato, in our brief in this case is that the Supreme Court has been extremely clear that blanket sort of prior restraints on speech or on a method of disseminating speech through something like the internet or a handbill is patently unconstitutional. The Supreme Court before us called this, to quote a great line from these cases, burning the house to roast the pig. It's not precise regulation. We capture too much legitimate speech in these sorts of regulations where the government just says no. So even if they were to have some sort of legitimate argument based on something more that Defense Distributed talks about than these hypotheticals that you brought up, really, they still can't have this blanket rule, which is what they're trying to push here. So one of the problems is that it's not a case-by-case analysis of different code and, and judging each each uh, line of code, I guess, or each set of code on its merits and saying, does this, you know, is this in the public interest? Is this not? What the State Department was trying to do was just would be a categorical ban on this type of code because of the, it doesn't matter whether it's the Liberator and this organization or another organization, any type of organization allowing or disseminating code online that could be used to print a gun, I mean, that would fall under the State Department's rationale, no? Precisely. And so, so Cato, it seems like you believe that you guys have a strong case. Uh, however, the first time this was ruled on, a federal district judge set, ruled in favor of the government. So what was the judge's rationale? Do you have a sense of what his, his or her opinion was? Yeah. So the, the federal district court... Uh, thought this was a close call case uh, in the in its original opinion, and what defense distributed was seeking this case is something called the preliminary injunction, which is a very high bar to meet at the outset. It means that before any evidence is introduced or before there's a trial or anything, we're going to enjoin the other party from carrying out the conduct that you claim is illegal and that we have to have a trial over. So to meet that burden, it's a very very strict test. And the judge believed that this was a close case up front, and on one factor in the analysis, called the public interest factor, he believed that the public interest weighed in favor of the government being able to prevent these sorts of regulation or to prevent these sorts of exports and to uphold their arms trafficking regulations. What we admonished the district court for is not taking into account the protected speech and the public interest in favor of constitutional free speech protections, which cut very heavily the other way, and which backs up against eighty years of Supreme Court practice precedent saying that you cannot do what the district court did in this case. So that judge was only looking at the case through the lens of, is it good or bad that it's this easy to print a gun, not necessarily looking at the ramifications for free speech by restricting this sort of thing? Because clearly the government can then find other technologies. 3D printing can be used for a a variety of things. I mean, guns is just one tiny aspect of this, but it's one of the more controversial aspects. But, you know, my dad's company, they make electrical meters. 3D printing, they print parts that otherwise they might have had to order in bulk or sit on, you know, useless inventory. It's making their production easier. So there's a lot of applications here. And I suppose what you're suggesting is that the judge didn't consider the implications of this type of restriction on free speech outside the lens of do we want people having guns or not? Yeah, more or less. I think the judge just improperly weighed the harms and benefits that are accorded. And when you're talking about a free speech harm, it's something that you that a preliminary injunction is much more likely to issue from. And it's something that the court has to take very strongly into account how this code is restricted and all the implications for restricting it from everything from how it affects artists to even the political expression of defense distributed and their desire to eliminate the underlying regulations in the case. So the... 
I think the district court felt that it was a close case. They took somewhat into account the coach's speech issue, but didn't really develop the analysis of it as far as I think that they should have. And the district court ended up making a kind of a close call in favor of not granting the injunction. So now what? I mean, we, we've got the uh, the government won on the first round, but now the court has moved to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. Yes. And that's where you filed your brief. And uh it, have have oral arguments taken place already? Are we just waiting for a decision? Uh, give us a sense of the timeline on the appeal. Right now, uh, the government has recently just filed its reply brief, so oral arguments should be coming up soon, and then we can expect an opinion in the next couple of months in the case. And if the court rules in favor of defense distributed and against the government, does this create a split opinion which would then kick it up to the Supreme Court, potentially? Uh, because the it would be contradicting a district court in its own circuit, no, it wouldn't create a split between two different circuits. It's a superior court saying to an inferior court, you got it wrong, versus one circuit saying to another circuit, you got it wrong. Okay, so, but is, assuming that the Court of Appeals rules in favor of defense distributed, is that the last straw, or can the government then appeal that decision to a higher court? It could appeal it even to the same court for a rehearing on Bach if they want to, which is a full panel of all the judges in the circuit, a very, very big show. And it can appeal from there to the United States Supreme Court. And if, I believe, if defense distributed wins on this level, then the State Department's probably going to try to get the Supreme Court to fix uh, the gap that now kind of exists in this international trafficking regulations through some statute saving. And if defense distributed loses at this stage, I believe they will appeal on First Amendment and Second Amendment grounds to the court. Well, there's certainly a lot of outcomes to look for, and uh, as oral arguments take place and if a decision comes down, we'll certainly uh, have you back on the show to discuss uh, that. But uh, I wanted to get into a couple broader issues at play here. Is the fact that the code that Defense Distributed is distributing open source? Does that matter that they're not? This is not a closed shop like the way that Apple is, or it's more of an open shop the way that Android is, where anyone can use the code and alter it for their own purposes. Is that a benefit to them in this case, or does it matter at all? I think it's definitely a benefit for them on factual grounds. As most people know, uh, a legal case consists of questions of law and questions of fact, and you determine the questions of law by answering the questions of fact. And in terms of determining whether this is an export of information or anything, the fact that it's open source, available for download to all Americans, and that all Americans can then take this code and modify it and build upon it, cuts against this being considered the, it cuts against not distinguishing between the code and the gun that could be produced by the code. As I've alluded to earlier, there's this artist that built a chandelier out of the code. Just banning the code or banning dissemination of the code in this open source format cuts in, it adds in a lot of other considerations about political and artistic merit, which this court would prefer to avoid and to just consider it a gun regulation. So let's, if, if the fact pattern were different, so let's say we've got a now a company distributing 3D printing code for guns, not a nonprofit, and clearly the motivation for this is, let's say it's a situation where you just sell the code. So I'm a user, I go online, I pay for the code, and now I print a gun using that code. And let's say someone internationally does that. 
now are we talking about exporting of firearms or do you still think that the law would favor this theoretical company? I think the law would still, at least under First Amendment grounds, because of a distinction between code and the thing that could be printed by the code, would still cut in favor of this company. But certainly those facts are much less advantageous. If if Defense Distributed was actually distributing arms, then it would be much worse than to, harder for them anyways to say, we're not exporting arms under the arms exporting regime. So I guess it's... It's more sympathetic if it's an, a nonprofit who's just giving things away for free than a company that's trying to profit off of the 3D printing of guns. Yeah, and it significantly bolsters the speech claims. Uh, when you have artists who are literally using the code to drive the burgeoning field of 3D printing and art and to drive even engineering, because we've seen different kinds of weapons even being developed off of the Liberator's Code. And this kind of gets into the issue of really, even if the State Department had uh, validity to its argument, it couldn't enforce its argument anyways. I mean, have you ever tried to stop illegal music downloads? I mean, certainly they've tried and they've, I guess, failed. <laughs> and that's the that's the real issue. As much as Defense Distributed is prevented from putting these files on its website, they're on the Pirate Bay. I was able to look them up and research in the case. And certainly this case also has broader implications for the gun control debate, because a lot of times in the gun control debate, we're either talking about background checks or we're talking about restricting the types of firearms that are able to be sold. But rarely do you hear the president and other proponents of gun control addressing the futility argument that a lot of libertarians will make. They'll say, look, the fact that you can buy a printer and that 3D printer is going to get much less expensive over the next years, as all technology seems to do and you can just print any gun you want, is it pretty much over? I mean, are, are we really talking about stemming the flow of guns to people if you can just print them? I mean, it, it, it seems like it would make that argument futile, no? I, to a certain degree, this is something we somewhat alluded to in our brief, but we want to focus, of course, on the First Amendment issues primarily. But there is definitely an issue with enforcement. The State Department here is trying to ban a file from being on the internet. That is an exercise in futility to say the very least of the issue. What we're going to have to deal with is if the State Department wants to keep the guns out of the hands of people, it has to adopt at least a more strict regime or at least a different form of regulation. Blanket bans on the internet are as futile as they are an imposition on rights. And of course, when you're getting into the idea of restricting any code that can be printed for guns versus other code, there's First Amendment problems, there's enforcement problems, and certainly people who support a free and open internet who might also support gun control, that's going to really be a tough issue for them. Because do we really want entities like the State Department or other federal entities deciding what you are allowed to use your 3D printer for? I mean, certainly there are things like don't print a nuclear weapon, fine, but but, uh, but really any any, any attempt for the government to engineer certain policy outcomes in 3D printing could have a chilling effect on innovation or could just be completely impractical and unworkable. Now, the State Department's rationale that printing a gun using this code could be the export of firearms, are there other areas of law and policy that could be affected by that rationale? Do you see this kind of bleeding into other cases? I see this bleeding a lot into art cases, and I think, and I tried to make a very good note of this in the brief, and I've alluded to it once or twice in this interview already, is this artist who built the chandelier. Now, 
The process she went through is quite amazing. She didn't own a 3D printer. She downloaded the torrent files, sent them to a friend in Germany, and had a friend in Germany print out the guns in order to create this chandelier. Now, that's international arms trafficking if we accept the State Department's argument. But what we're talking about is an artist who literally built a piece for an exhibit. So when we start to get into these issues of like what we can use for code for, if we don't, when we don't presume that code should be free speech, it can have that chilling effect you're talking about, especially when we're talking about 3D printing. This is a new area. There's very few artists who actually know how to design and create CAD files and can drive it. And this is still something that's growing with engineers and architects. Restricting the code in CAD files is fraught with danger. Well, that's it for today's show. My guest has been Randall Meyer, a legal associate at the Cato Institute, which filed a brief in this case. Randall, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Evan. Follow us on Twitter at Tech Freedom or on Facebook.com slash Tech Freedom. Find this podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast app. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It will help us and it will help others find the show. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.